Um, our next scripture comes from Matthew 5, um, verses 1 to 11. It's the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. It's on page 1501 in your pew Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to them, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. When I was taught the Beatitudes as a kid, um, I always got the sense that I have just been allowed to glimpse uh, of some like beautiful painting before, before I had to shut my eyes and move on. Maybe I saw a face that was really intriguing or an incredible sunset that's been seared in my brain, but I wasn't allowed time to appreciate it. Nothing as beautiful as the Beatitudes could be shallow. Nothing beautiful really is. When you see something truly beautiful, you can't help but think that you could live with it forever, that you could swim in it and enjoy every nook and cranny of it. There's depth and mystery and complexities here, which are sometimes masked by just how simple Jesus' language really is. He says stuff that looks really obvious, but it's hard to put into practice. So I want to encourage all of you to look at the Beatitudes as often as you can and really wrestle with them. Because when you do, you'll be wondering, is this really a practical way to live? Can a world where people live like this really exist? What would it cost me to live like this in this way? Would this make my life better or worse? And that's the only way to really understand them. So obviously in just a few minutes, I can't really give you an appreciation for every bit of this passage. But I can explain one piece that might be hidden in the background of this passage. Kind of like you can see on our bulletin, um, peace between the American settlers and the indigenous tribe in the background. And hopefully that'll get you started on thinking and wrestling with the rest of this passage, which I think is so relevant to the wars and conflict that we face in our daily lives and, in, and all the more intensely around the world. Jesus was saying all of this in a particular historical context to answer particular questions that everybody that was a part of his people was trying to answer. The Jewish people had lived for several centuries at this point without a kingdom that they could truly call their own. In 586 BC, they were deported away from their homeland through a brutal war with the Babylonian Empire. And they recognized that this was their punishment for disobeying God's law for centuries. And even though they were allowed to return back to their homeland and rebuild their temple, it didn't really feel like they had ever really returned from exile. It didn't seem like God had really returned to his temple. And they lived under foreign empires and occupiers for centuries. 
Certainly, they partially blamed themselves. They knew they didn't follow the Torah well enough. But they also blamed every nation around them. And it was fair. They suffered all kinds of atrocities at the hands of the Gentiles. The Babylonians took them out of their land and mocked them by forcing them to sing their patriotic songs. The Empire of the Greeks launched surprise attacks on the Sabbath when they knew the Jews wouldn't be ready. They force-fed them pork to try to get them to stop following the Torah, and they slaughtered all the priests that were loyal to one of their political leaders and brought pigs into the temple to defile it. The Romans made them pawns in a war between Julius Caesar and Pompey Magnus, which led to tons of them being killed for its people that they didn't even know. And the general consensus among the Jews was that they needed to revolt. So they were just gathering their strength until someday they'd be able to revolt and start their own kingdom. They thought that was what God wanted them to do. And some of those revolts were actually pretty successful. There was a Jewish kingdom for about 80 years around, starting around uh, 150 BC. Most of them, though, were colossal failures that were put down brutally. Jesus probably would have seen them firsthand. In 6 AD, when Jesus was about 10 years old, there was a revolt in Galilee that was put down brutally. That's his village. That's where he grew up. Every day there had been talk about whether today is finally the day that they take up arms and kill the oppressors. And honestly, looking back, I would have thought the same things. These Gentiles have been brutal to us. We need to be brutal back. It's the only way we're going to survive as a people. The kingdom of God is at hand. It'll be here any day now. And when we finally work up the nerve to fight like the Gentiles do. Now Jesus sees himself as the rightful king of Israel. And this Sermon on the Mount is kind of like his inauguration speech. When he's saying these things in this passage, he's saying, these are the type of people who are going to be part of my kingdom. Now in that context, you can imagine just how scandalous these Beatitudes really were. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Are you kidding me? No. We need to fight the Gentiles. We've been, we've, when we've shown mercy, we've been taken advantage of. Did they show mercy to us? when they killed us on the Sabbath? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Look, I'm all for righteousness, but I'm about done with persecution. It's been centuries. We've been persecuted long enough. It's time to do some of our own. You read these Beatitudes, and you can't help but think that this is nothing but weakness. No, Jesus, you just don't have the nerve to do what must be done here. What Jesus is saying is that what the world sees as strength is often weakness. And what the world sees as weakness is often strength. We all recognize it at some level. A father that loses his temper with his children is not stronger than one who is calm, but weaker. He may be puffing up his chest and asserting his dominance, but it's weakness nonetheless. Who cares that you have all this emotion if you're not strong enough to act rationally? The same is true all over the place. We want a tough guy to take charge. But what we mean by a tough guy is often the one that advocates for their own interests without even considering the interests of others. When there's conflict between people, we often think that the strong thing to do is to get out of the situation entirely. I don't believe what these people believe, so I'm going to be strong and puff up my chest and storm out and find people that are more comfortable to live with. Now, it often takes much more strength to love people who disagree with you or even hate you. It takes the kind of strength that Jesus had. Compromise is often much harder than being hardline. Being hardline is very simple. 
Compromising and recognizing someone else's point of view can be complicated and emotionally trying. Now, that doesn't mean that we should compromise on everything. Jesus didn't either. But it does mean that maintaining your purity at the expense of loving your neighbor is weakness, not strength. The scandal of all this is found most perfectly in Jesus' own life. The Gospels say that the, st- the place where Jesus most showed his strength was on the cross, where he suffered torture and death for the sake of those he loved. That's what strength really looks like in Jesus' kingdom. And it's the kind of strength he's talking about in his inauguration speech. And think about just how incredible it is that Jesus is giving his inauguration speech now in the story, before he has a royal robe or a crown on his head. And even when he does wear a crown, it'll be a crown of thorns. All this because Jesus demonstrates a different kind of strength from the strength of the kings of the earth. Now, in this whole speech, I want to focus on one particular beatitude, just like the one corner of the painting that might show you what the whole thing is about. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. One of the cool things about kids is that a lot of the time you can tell just by looking at them who their parents are. And it's not just that they, what they look like, but sometimes their mannerisms are even the same. When my dad and I watch football, when we get excited, we do this weird thing where we rub our hands together like this. You can tell just by looking at us that we're related. Now, this was even more pronounced in the ancient world. There, there you grew up in your house, and if you were a daughter, you'd pretty much shadow your mother until you grew up. You make food, you plant a garden, you make clothing. Basically, daughters do all the stuff that mothers traditionally do until they get married and do it themselves and have kids, and the cycle continues. And it was similar for sons. You'd basically shadow your father the whole day as your father carries out the family business. If your father is a carpenter, if you, you as a son would learn carpentry. If your father was a farmer, you as a son would learn farming. If you were a daughter, you were expected to do what your mother does. If you were a son, you were expected to carry out the family business. Now, that makes a real difference in the way that, we see, that you see what it means to be a child of God. We see a child of God, and all we think about is this relationship between the parent and the child, how the parent loves their child and raises them. What they would see was that a child has an even closer tie to their parent. The child isn't just expected to fulfill a role in a certain relationship. They're meant to carry on the family business. They're meant to look like their parent in every which way. Your father's a carpenter? Well, then you're a carpenter. Your father's a fisher? Then you're a fisher. For that reason, it makes sense that Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they would be called the children of God. Because the peacemakers are carrying on the family business. Your father is a peacemaker, well then you're a peacemaker. You can properly be called a child of God if you do the things your father does. But this, once again, is absolutely not what Jesus' audience wants to hear. Calling for peace was not part of the zeitgeist of Jesus' time. Just like it isn't that way here, either. The Jews know that what they want their Messiah to do and to be. There were tons of false messiahs at the time of Jesus rising up and being torn down. And they all basically wanted the same thing. They wanted war. First we'll burn the world down, then we'll make peace with the ashes. And you can't blame them too much. It's how all the kingdoms of the earth work. But Jesus came to bring a different kind of kingdom to this world. And it was one that showed a different kind of strength. 
which was the kind that doesn't stoke unnecessary conflict. Instead of causing other people to suffer, this king bore the suffering himself on the cross. Instead of running away with angry emotions leading to hatred, this kingdom does everything it can to understand its opponents better and to love them. Instead of taking revenge, it forgives enemies, even those that persecute them. And all of this because it's founded on a vision of a world set right, where peace and justice reigns, because it loves scriptures with images of swords being beaten into plowshares and tears being wiped away from every eye, where death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The kingdom of Christ shuns the kind of weakness that comes from the loss of hope, where everyone is evil, and this world is just going to pot, so we may as well get what we can out of it, even if it means committing some violence of our own. The strong get what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. No. The kingdom is born out of the strength that comes from a persistent hope that God will save this world, and he'll use his church to play a small part in it, because it's the family business. There's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. Of course, the past couple of weeks, this world hasn't really looked like that new world and that new kingdom. We're here because we've seen some terrible things. Humans who bear the image of God destroying each other. And in times like these, it's easy to think that we're powerless in the face of this kind of destruction. In the grand scheme of things, we really are. But what we can do is three things. One, we can maintain our hope that God will set this world right and that he will accomplish this at some level through his people, the church. We can remember the beautiful images of the Bible about a generation being born where nation does not lift sword up sword against nation, and neither do they learn war anymore. This is the only way to keep us from sliding into the kind of nihilism that justifies evil just because it's the way of the world. No, it's not the way of the world, or at least not since Jesus Christ conquered the world on the cross. We need to constantly remind ourselves how beautiful and wonderful the kingdom of Christ is and to show the images of, of the kingdom to ourselves so that we don't lose hope and conform ourselves to the rest of the world that loves violence and hatred so long as, it, as they're the ones that do it. Two, we can avoid broadcasting anger and hatred about things around the world, especially if we don't understand them. You're not a tough guy because you advocated genocide from behind a keyboard. That's not strength. It's weakness, and it shows a lack of control over yourself. The strength of God was shown in Christ's restraint, not allowing the demonic powers of the world to taunt him and tempt him into violence and hatred, because that would only make him the same as all the other kings of this world. No, he allowed them to kill him, so that he would be raised triumph from the dead, triumphant over this world. And finally, three, we can seek peace in the conflicts in our own local community. Whenever we see division here, we see the first seeds of the kind of violence that you see on the news every day. When you see congregations splitting, you see disruptions of the peace of Christ's kingdom. When you see families and friendships giving up on each other, you see people giving up on the deeper love that exists when things aren't easy. Instead, we can show the strength of Christ that makes peace even with those who hate us. And in doing so, we show the family resemblance that belongs to the people of God, because we're peacemakers. It's the family business. Let's pray. God of peace, you reconciled the world to yourself by bearing its suffering. 
Give us the same kind of strength that you showed us so we would make peace wherever it's possible and so we could carry on the family business and truly be called your children. Amen.